Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. In an article published by the New York Times, reviewer Paul Eli called religious belief in contemporary fiction, quote, something between a dead language and a hangover, unquote. This salon explores the place religion holds in contemporary literature, if it holds any place at all. Can fiction still address questions of faith? Do we want it to? Listen in as Nick Arvin, Phyllis Barber, and Adam Rovner discuss these questions and many more. Welcome, everyone, to the salon on Has Literature Lost Its Faith? There really is no wagering tonight, but I put all my money on yes. Um, so um, I'm Andrea Dupree. I'm hoping you're enjoying Lip Fest so far. Are you? Cool. Um, we have this salon tonight, and tomorrow night we have the On Natural Salon, where the entire panel is going to be nude. It's going to be really awesome. In the audience, it's clothing optional. But bring a towel. Um, sorry, that's nudist colony humor. Um, why do I talk? Why do I talk? Thank you. Um, so, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. It's hard. It's hard. Um, so tonight's panel was proposed by Nick Arvin, who also proposed the egalitarian level of chairs, which I think is, is really um, progressive, forward thinking. But what I'm going to do is read the bios, which have been freshly edited for this evening, and then I'm going to turn it over to you guys. Um, but I do expect to see everybody at everything else. That was kind of my purpose for being here, is saying, come to everything else as well. Um, okay, so Nick Arvin, on the far right, grew up in Michigan and earned degrees in mechanical engineering from the University of Michigan and a little place called Stanford. He has worked in automotive engineering, forensic engineering, and the design of <clears throat> Sorry, and the design of power plants and oil and gas facilities. He's also a graduate of the Iowa Writers' Workshop um, and the author of three books, In the Electric Eden, Articles of War, and The Reconstructionist, which I believe is for sale from the tattered cover back there. So please charge the tattered cover. Go and get like five books and get them signed by Nick. Um, his work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, Wall Street Journal and has been honored with awards from the American Academy of Arts and Letters, the American Library Association, the I Sherwood Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. Nick taught creative writing and rhetoric at the University of Iowa, and more importantly, he has taught at Lighthouse Writers Workshop <laughs> since 2004. Um, right next to me, the lovely um, Phyllis Barber, whose most recent book is To the Mountain, One Mormon Woman's Search for the Spirit, which is also for sale back there. I've already pulled my copy, so if you want to be sure to get a copy, you should pull your copy and get it. Um, and she has two previous memoirs, How I Got Cultured and Raw Edges, as well as collections of stories, children's books, other works. A native of Nevada and now a resident of Park City, Utah, 
Phyllis writes about the West, the desert, the Mormons who played a significant role in settling the West and creating the person she's become, and about matters of the spirit with its familiar and unfamiliar reaches. She's taught creative nonfiction in the MFA program at Vermont College, and this is not in her bio. You have to be here to know this. Also at Lighthouse Writers Workshop. And as well as being a professional pianist, has been inducted into the Nevada Writers Hall of Fame. And to my left, um, Adam Rovner is an associate professor at the University of Denver's English department. He was born and raised in the U.S. of A., Um, Later, he lived in Israel for several years and became a naturalized citizen of that country. During his time in Israel, he milked cows on a kibbutz. Kibbutz. I actually put the phonetic spelling there because I am that way. Um, He served in the military as an educator and administrator and completed his MA in comparative literature at the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. He later received his PhD in comparative lit from Indiana University. He is the author of the forthcoming narrative history, In the Shadow of Zion, Promised Lands Before Israel from NYU Press, which I'm sure we will have at next year's book. I hope so. Fair. For signing. Um, And he directed and wrote the short documentary, No Land Without Heaven, about the Jewish territorialist movement, which has been screened in New York, Paris, and Tel Aviv. So welcome to this amazing panel. Thank you all for being here. Yeah, I'm probably the least qualified person in Denver to be on this panel, um, but I, I proposed it, and uh, and so I got to weasel in that way. Um, and I proposed it uh, because um, because sort of the, the the role of faith in literature is something I've been thinking about uh, off and on for the last few years, um, and. Um, I think I, I kind of started thinking about it um, because I, I would find myself creating these characters that were mushy and that weren't doing anything very interesting. And um, at some point I had the, the thought of um, starting to interrogate my characters about their beliefs. Um, and I just taught a, a seminar that sort of use this as the the activating principle but that found that you know if i if i take my characters and start really kind of beating them up to get them to say what they um what they really believe um and it could be a matter of whether they believe in god or not or it could be um uh you know and all sorts of things do they believe in themselves um they're they're it it forced them to, to crystallize their character in a way um that that made them um it made them have a core and made them react against things um and you know a lot of times when you when you when I started interrogating my characters on those those principles um you know those those questions would would resolve down to questions that that are addressed through faith and religious faith and um and so then uh, around that same time, um, this essay by Paul Ely came out. Um, it was published in the New York Times, and the title of the essay was Fiction Lost Its Faith. Um, and it, it sort of uh, is the, the background for, for this panel, and the, the title really comes from it. Um, 
and it's it's a relatively long uh, essay, and I encourage you to to pull it up online. Um, uh, I I created a really reduced version of extracts from it for the class, and so I'm going to go ahead and read that. Um, Ely is is when he says when the title of his piece is "Has Fiction Lost His Faith?" He's really talking about Christian faith. Um, and you know, I'm, I'm glad that on this panel we have uh, more perspective than just Christian faith. Um, but that's that's where Paul Ely's coming from. Um, he says how Christian belief figures into literary fiction in our place and time as something between a dead language and a hangover. Forgive me if I exaggerate, but if any patch of our culture can be said to be post-Christian, it is literature. Half a century after Flannery O'Connor, Walker Percy, Reynolds Price, and John Updike presented themselves as novelists with what O'Connor called Christian convictions, their would-be successors are thin on the ground. Where has the novel of belief gone? The obvious answer is that it has gone where belief itself has gone. In America today, Christianity is highly visible in public life, but marginal or of no consequence in a great many individual lives. For the first time in our history, it is possible to speak of Christianity matter-of-factly as one religion among many. For the first time, it is possible to leave it out of the conversation altogether. This development places the believer on a frontier again, at the beginning of a new adventure. It means that the Christian who was born here is a stranger in a strange land, no less than the Sikhs, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, Soviet Jews, and Spanish-speaking Catholics who have arrived here from elsewhere. But few people see it that way. People of faith see decline and fall. Their detractors see a people threatening rearguard political action, or a people left behind. Half a century ago, Flannery O'Connor framed the struggle to make belief believable as a struggle for the attention of the indifferent reader. The religious aspect in a work of fiction, she insisted, is a dimension added, not one taken away, and she explained how she added it. To the hard of hearing, you shout, and for the almost blind, you draw large and startling figures. This refusal to grant belief any explanatory power shows purity and toughness on the part on the writer's part, but it also calls to mind what my Catholic ancestors called scrupulosity, an avoidance that comes at the cost of fullness of life. That, or it may show that the writer realizes just how hard it is to make belief believable. You hope to find the writer who can dramatize belief the way it feels in your experience, at once a fact on the ground and a sponsor of the uncanny, an account of our predicament that still and all has the old power to persuade. You look for a story or a novel where the writer puts it all together. That would be enough. That would be something. That would be unbelievable. Um, so Ely's coming at it from a Christian perspective. Um, but... Um, and I, and if you dig into his essay, uh, I think he's he's really talking about a particular kind of uh, novel of faith. He's talking about a novel where someone's faith is tested, um, and 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 he's saying you know those those novels just aren't out there, um, and and I, I think he has a point, but he's also limiting what he's talking about in a in a kind of a curious way. Um, but it does seem to me that that faith has been um, uh, 
pushed to the margins, at least within um, communities like this, um, like the Lighthouse. Um, we, we, in the class I taught, we talked about how um, it's it, this this topic of faith and belief, um, and even philosophy and ideas, is something that just doesn't get uh, much room within the classroom um, of a workshop, and it's not something that most uh, instructors. <laughs> bring up it's not uh you know it's it's obviously a big part of people's lives it's you would naturally assume it's a big part of your character's lives um but it's not there very much um within the workshop um and i felt like within the class there was um a feeling that um this was this was a topic that people were really interested in and uh were drawn towards um but there wasn't um people weren't used to talking about it and there was there were kind of these halts within the conversation because um you know it was almost like people didn't have the vocabulary for it um so it it seems to me like it's an important topic um and uh one that you know should be a big part of literature um and but isn't really a part of the conversation and uh in proposing this topic it was you know my thought to start getting it out there Phyllis? Do you have glasses or not? <laughs> so, um, let's see. Can you hear me now? Okay. A story is told about Henri Matisse, who was asked to do some stained glass windows for a chapel. And his friend Pablo Picasso said to him, how can you do this when we've worked so hard against the notions uh, of the... Uh, of religion, and when we are more for liberation and freedom. And Matisse answered to him, and I'll read what he said. Matisse replied with the observation that they had both as artists devoted their lives to recovering a state of grace they had known in their early churched years, what he called the inner atmosphere of the First Communion. So um, you've talked about things I was <laughs> going to yeah. mention. So, uh, I will just get, tell you a little bit where I'm coming from. I was born into Mormonism, and uh, I left for 20 years and went to every possible spiritual, religion, persuasion that I could. Uh, Lutherans, Methodists, Baptists, shamans in Peru and Ecuador, Tibetan Buddhist monks, and uh, goddess worshipers. And so I really took a really big trip because <laughs> I was curious how people related to this, what I like to call the great perhaps, the divine, the unknowable, the ineffable, and some people use the word God, which I know is uneasy for some people. So please... Uh, I just know I'm speaking from my tradition. Um, <clears throat> I really uh, I love spirit. I love to feel that state of grace. I felt it many times. I feel it walking in the forest. I feel it with I'm um, having a great conversation with someone. And I, I like to call that spirit. So that's where I am coming from with that. Let's see. Um I'm having to change my first part because of what Nick, uh, Nick already told Sorry, me. Sorry. <laughs> okay, well, I have a particular religious background that has talks about having truth with a capital T. So um, I have railed a bit against that as I've been in the, involved in the church. 
and I believe there are many angles into understanding the spiritual and material meaning of life. But first, what is religion? Uh, the word religion is based on the root lig, L-I-G, meaning to bind or connect together, as in ligament. So religion means reconnecting or rebonding broken relationships with God, with neighbor, with stranger and enemy, with non-human life, with all creation. That sounds well and good enough to most people, but what about the organized part, the part that makes some people shift in their shoes and raise their wait-a-minute fingers? Whatever it is, religion has offered a language for speaking about the meaning of lives and the meaning of life itself. And humans have a hunger for meaning and a yearning to understand. And what does it mean to be a person of faith? We could talk about that all night, and this is a huge subject, but uh, faith in biblical terms is the evidence of things not seen. The words God, divine power, higher power, the great I am, are only attempts with a weak vessel of language to pinpoint something humans have tried to comprehend since time's beginning. Faith, to me, is basically not knowing. It's a place where the finger can only point to the moon, which is a reflection of the sun. So um, Christianity, I'll just talk a little bit about it because it's my background. But um, the religion was an essential in the ideals of our founding fathers. And I just heard uh, Franklin Roosevelt offering a prayer uh, for World War II, and I thought that's a very different language than we hear today. In God we trust, they declared, but wary of the misuse of religious power, they also created a separation of church and state. Uh, But a knowledge of the scriptures of the Holy Writ was something shared by many people, and you can't do that anymore. You can't assume that when you uh, talk about the book of Job that you have an audience that will go with you there. Um, And Christianity held sway in religious conversation in this country for many years. But it is a religion composed of a multitude of imperfect beings, with various impulses, desires, and flaws. So it doesn't now appeal to hold, it doesn't appear to hold a strong place in our literature it once did. It has become one religion among many, as Nick has said. As my friend, the great environmentalist George Handley says, secularism was needed in the West to help dethrone theology as the reigning epistemology so as to allow science and the humanities a chance to make their claims about the universe as well. But problem is the vacant throne has tempted the scientists, religionists, and humanists with dreams of ascendancy or exclusive rights to truth. Ascendancy, being right, having the answers, and having a corner on truth is a major temptation. So the religious conversation has become very frustrating and has created much divisiveness. Either or, right or wrong, my way or the highway, some people taking warlike militaristic positions. I'm right, you are wrong, and item. Religions have killed others in their name. Pogroms in Russia, inquisitions in Portugal and Spain, the Holocaust, ethnic cleansings, witch hunts, terrorists bombing the Twin Towers in New York City. All of this has created understandable resistance, even a backlash. Who wants to give their obedience to God, whom no one can see, to a God who may be heir, to a God who is harsh and vindictive to a God at all? Religion has had a long, sometimes torturous, as well as torturing history, and that has created an understandable divide. On the other hand, 
<coughs> Miroslav Volf, who is the current dean of the Yale School of Divinity, and he's also a Croatian. He's written a wonderful book called uh, Expulsion and Embrace, if you're interested in this. But he says, secularization is the repressive power of the state where religion is abandoned as superfluous. Armed with science, religion is no longer necessary. Reason alone will write human design. But, he added, there has been a failure of the world to secularize. The world is deeply religious. In 2012, Brian D. McLaren, who was a former evangelical preacher, wrote a thought-provoking book titled, Why Did Jesus, Moses, the Buddha, and Mohammed Cross the Road? It's great. (laughs) He writes about how Christians need to reread the teachings of Christ about compassion and about treating others as they would be treated, which golden rule, by the way, is not found only in the New Testament, but in the writings and oral traditions of many cultures, ancient and modern. McLaren is making a fervent plea to Christians especially, but to all religious persuasions, to open their eyes, reread their holy scriptures, and to stop seeing their faith as an oppositional identity, even a hostility to other religious faiths seen as wrong, false, or evil. And I'd like to tell you a small story by a 13th century mystic, Farid Uddan Attar, who predicted the appearance of two Dajjal literally one who lies. Each of these liars has only one eye and will speak from a different perspective. One who has only a right eye will see the world as entirely consisting of spirit. The other with only a left eye will see the world as no more than matter and material things. The lies they tell will only be defeated by the restoration of stereoscopic sight in which the spiritual and material are joined and reality can be seen as a whole. We need language and story to get to the heart of our struggles, our character struggles, language that can carry us closer to the heart of the matter, closer to being able to find closure, peace of mind. And because there is a sense that we are influenced by something or things or influence is much greater than ourselves, then we try to find these things that can't be seen or explained with rational answers through the beauty of the earth, through a line of poetry, through music, Faith and religion are vehicles, only vehicles, that many have chosen to ride on the journey toward the unknowable. Neither is the end of the journey, nor its destination. They sputter, each takes wrong turns, runs out of gas at times, each breaks down, and is shaped by imperfect humans, most of whom want, yearn, supplicate the unseen to find the way, the path, the answer to our yearnings for meaning. These approaches need not be discarded because they provide a way. We need this type of conversation in our literature, and the questions are still with us. It's my belief, if writers choose to write from a religious faith-based conviction, however, that they need to be aware of their complex histories and not assume that everyone cares in the same way they do or has their exclusive view of the world. They need to remember that they aren't speaking, aren't speaking for a particular truth, but are only considering the huge behemoth of life with its human suffering, tragedy, comedy, beauty, belief, and conviction. They need to be the best writers they can be to give up life secrets, either material or spiritual. The artistry of re-seeing, the challenges of words, cliches, ideas, the gift of new life, new ways of seeing. This is the place where writers are not situated between a dead language and a hangover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <All right. Thanks. laughs>
So <clears throat> that's working great. Um, so when Nick asked me to do this, I responded with uh, uh, I stumped him. And if you know Nick, he's very sharp. It's very very difficult to stump Nick. <laughs> and and what I said was, well, what do you mean by faith or belief? Because that's a very different thing in Judaism. So. Um, speaking for all Jews everywhere at all times, <laughs> I, I will uh, explain uh, this distinction. Um, the whole notion of well, it, compared to you mentioned Flannery O'Connor, for example, so or another Catholic writer, Graham Greene. These are not these are, are Catholic writers, specific Catholic. Um, uh, affiliations and in Judaism there is no Pope. Now I know there's no Pope in Protestant traditions either, but they tend uh, in different Protestant traditions there, there's a lot of schisms, there's denominations, there's sectarianism um, but they each tend to have a kind of hierarchy within the particular church. Judaism has no Pope and its hierarchy is remarkably Incoherent to the extent that there is one. The joke that most people may know is two Jews, three opinions. Um, and this carries over as well into issues of faith. In fact, I think it's probably wrong to define Judaism as a religion of faith because faith plays a very small role in um, Jewish life in general. I'm not just speaking now about uh, the more assimilated groups. You might know people who reform Jews or conservative Jews. These might be terms that are familiar with you. But even talking about so uh, Jews who follow religious law, like Orthodox Jews, or you've seen the Hasids with the fur hats, the ultra-Orthodox, uh, not the greatest term, but that's what people call them, the fervently religious is what they're often called uh, in Jewish circles. All these groups have different ways of expressing faith, and faith is not really a primary issue, at least not in the way that Christians, Catholic, and, and Protestant Christians typically discuss this issue. In fact, the whole idea of that there's an orthodoxy in Judaism is a misnomer, really. Orthodoxy is a, is a, a correct uh, set of principles. There are, there's a doxy. There's a, a way of belief. But in fact, we don't have that. There's no principles really that one has to adhere to. What defines one as Jewish fundamentally is matrilineal descent. That is, was your mother Jewish? Um, it is a bloodline descent, and there are other aspects, but even those things, um, whatever you profess or do not profess, whether you've been circumcised, men only, just to make that clear. Uh, I, I teach, so sometimes these things are misunderstood. Uh, that, 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 is, uh, that does not necessarily mean that if you aren't, it doesn't mean you're not Jew if your mother's Jewish. So it, it is a, a, a nation a national conception almost that is extraterritorial and is about a covenanted people. And what you believe does not necessarily matter to what you do. So as I understand, I've had these conversations with students, and it's, it's, it's a very different mindset for um, Christian students who are, or, or some of you, I'm sure, who are believers to say – if you do good deeds in a Protestant tradition, but you don't accept Jesus as your personal savior, you don't actually believe in God, that's not going to help you to do good deeds. But in Judaism, 
it doesn't matter what you believe. It matters what you do. So to actually put it in in the right terms, I like precision in my words, it would actually, we'd have to call it that Judaism knows orthopraxy, a praxis, a way of practice, but it doesn't actually know a doxy, a, a dogma. There's no belief. So that's fundamentally different. And I suspect, I, I can't prove it, but I would suspect that some of that uh, tradition of questioning, that tradition of disagreement has filtered into American Jewish letters and maybe has allowed American Jewish letters to have such an uh, unrepresentative uh, impact on American writing because it's a kind of breath of fresh air to a largely Christian society. Still, to this day, we're largely Christian. We're defined by Christian uh, uh, assessments and Christian um, prejudice, not in a bad way, but just the, the way that we think about things, like the article that, you're, that we're discussing here tonight, in a sense, which is the touchstone for our talk, that the basic principles were Christian, faith and belief. Well, Judaism has always been a religion of questioning, and the ways in which this comes out are present not only in literature and secular ideas, they're also present in our traditional sources. So there, you've heard of the Torah, maybe? Right, it's a, it's a pretty good book. Some people call it the good book. In fact, so it's worth picking up the five books of Moses. So that's where in in the second book of the five books, right? It was a, a long series. The first one sold so well they kept <laughs> publishing. And in Exodus, that in Exodus, that's where you get the the first commandment of the Ten Commandments, which is, and it's it's something. I have free translation here, uh, but it's something like. I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't actually say you have to believe in me. It just says don't believe in anyone else. And I and, and that may be that may seem legalistic, but remember that Judaism is a legalistic religion. Because in addition to the the Bible, the Torah and, and other writings, you also have what's the Talmud. You may have heard of that. That's the oral law, which is lots of commentaries and stories on those rules. And that oral law in traditional what's called Torah true Judaism has the same authority as the five books of Moses, etc. And the Talmud, if you look at it, is full of disagreements and arguments among rabbis. And I say it's legalistic because just as in our legal system, there are precedents and there are majority opinions and minority opinions, so too in Judaism. So when I said that there's an orthopraxis, even there, that's not exactly true because different people, what we would say, this is the jargon. I was talking to Carrie, is that your name? I'm talking to Carrie about the jargon of in-groups. The jargon of Jews, you can try this out in your Jewish friends, is to say, you know, I hold by so-and-so. So the different people hold by, that is, hold the rules by different rabbis. And this leads to um, eclecticism, incoherence, and um, naturally lots of really strong disagreements about what the right, not the right belief, is what the right thing to do is. You have a lot of arguments about what should I do um, how long do I need to, you know, cheeseburgers are off limits to Jews. Pepperoni pizza off limits. Can't eat milk with meat. But you can eat milk before meat. Why? I don't know. But <laughs> I don't know that. But how long, but you can have, if you have meat before milk, you have to wait. How long do you have to wait? 
this is a this is a practical problem. If I've just had meat, how long do I have to wait before I can have an ice cream sandwich or a milkshake? Some people say an hour. Some people say three hours. Some people say six hours. Some people say 12 hours. And different Jews have hold by different rulings in a very practical way. And you can imagine the kind of strife this causes when people hold by different ideas. That uh, I'll just tell a joke. The There's a, a famous story. Uh, it's a joke, famous joke about the Jewish Robinson Crusoe. And so he's he's a I know it's a funny idea, but he's he already had the beard. So he's out there on the island for twenty years and he's rescued and they see him and he's fashioned a, a skull cap out of like a leaf or something and he's got his side curls and his his beard and he's showing them, he's like, Look, this is where I keep my livestock in this pen I built and they're very, the people who are rescuing him are amazed. It's unbelievable that you've survived here. That's like, wonderful. How did you build this corral? said, you know, I worked, I sweated. He says, this is my home. It's a cave. It has a chimney. They're amazed. And he says, and this, this is my crowning achievement. He points to this remarkable wooden structure, this, this enormous column structure. And he said, this is my synagogue. <laughs> and they say, wow, that's amazing. And they look up on the other side, and there's another building just like it. And they say, well, what's that building over there that's just as nice? They go, that's a synagogue I wouldn't sit foot in. <laughs> that is a characteristic of argumentation. So, so belief is not uh, essential. <laughs> um... You're finishing with the joke. Yeah. I'm just going to go down to high note. All right. So um, I'm hoping that the, this will be a heavily um, audience participative uh, discussion. Um, but I did bring some questions to kind of help get us started here. Um, and uh, I think uh, for for both of you, um, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear more about you know how... Um, how what you're talking about relates specifically to literature and what you and I and I and, and to, to sort of get to the question also of um, has literature lost its faith? However you define faith, um, I guess maybe maybe don't even worry about losing it. But just how do you see uh, faith's role within literature um, changing over the last hundred years or whatever whatever over the you know, over time. You're the literature teacher. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I would say that it's it's complicated, obviously, but I think in Jewish American letters, that's what I'm going to, I'll focus on, on that little parochial area. That's what I teach. Um, in, if you look back to the early 20th century and American Jewish writing, you had lots of immigrant narratives um, people who are somewhat forgotten today are only read by people who teach uh, literature. But uh, Anzia Yazerska was a very good fiction writer um, of the day. She was um, called the uh, what was she called the something like the 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 Cinderella of Hester Street or something. She wrote this short story collection, uh, uh, Hungry Hearts, which was turned into a big Hollywood film, and she got a hundred thousand dollars in like nineteen twenty. Can't imagine and went out to Hollywood. Um, so she was a big bestseller, and she wrote about 
the immigrant experience and the torture, the, the crises she felt about leaving the religious world behind, her world of her family behind, turning her back on religion to accept, to assimilate into American society. Um, the, uh, another uh, of female writer is Mary Anton, who wrote a great memoir called The Promised Land, and she read a similar story, and she begins a, 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 a in this shtetl, this little Jewish town, comes to America, is exposed to all the, the world in, in Boston. She ends the novel, memoir with a kind of Unitarian Judaism thing where it sort of addressed her prayers t- to whom it may concern. That, that <laughs> kind of vagueness. And it was, again, a huge, uh, a huge bestseller. Or um, a little bit later... Uh, she's writing in 1912. A little bit later, Henry Roth, is, which is a great master, it's a masterpiece, American masterpiece called "Call It Sleep." If you haven't read it, I—that's my job. I tell people what to read. You—you you should read it. It's really phenomenal. That novel again is about this torture, about leaving the religious world behind and learning how to assimilate. That's the immigrant experience of the Jews from the early part of the 20th century. So religion is present, but it was the conversion narrative of leaving religion and moving to a secular world. And then you have the great uh, post-war American writers, the, the law firm, right, of, of Malamud, Roth, and Bellow, that they, they are already distant from, that's not original, they're, they're already distant from this tradition. And if you read Bellow, even though he, he talks about these ultimate issues, his novels, short stories, well, they don't focus on those same crises. They're not the wrenching crisis that you see in the earlier generation. Why? Because that world's already moved on. Um, you don't see anything like even, even – you don't see Graham Greene. You don't see the Flannery O'Connor type things in Bellow uh, for all his profundity. You, you don't even see Updike, I think, in, in that kind of writing. Uh, people could agree, disagree with me. When you get to someone like Philip Roth, again, he, his, er, his first collection, Goodbye Columbus, you have a couple stories there um, that are really directed at faith, great stories like The Conversion of the Jews or, or Defender of the Faith. They're, they're focused on that, but as his career trajectory moves on, those issues get left behind. It's, Malamud's the odd one of the bunch, the, that triumvirate, because his work is actually, to me, I know people don't like to hear, at least the, the Jewish people, that he's, it's relatively Christian. I mean, there's a lot of sin and redemption in Malamud, which I think is very Christian, um, actually. And it's probably one of the reasons why he was so widely accepted and embraced uh, as a great short story writer in America. It was, it was, you know, Christian theology with a little bit of Jewish stuff mixed in. Um, and so that, that distanced from religion because that was the experience of that generation the the children of immigrants who had fully assimilated and then you come up to contemporary and this is where i think we're back to religion i think in the 1990s you have people like nathan englander coming on or i mentioned nick earlier this uh, writer tova mirvis where they start delving into the 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 problems the the issues of religious jews in an american society in an America that is overwhelmingly accepts different beliefs and actions. Um, and in Englander's stories and in, in Mervis's work, you see that negotiation of the religious and the secular space. And right now, like today, if you there's a huge, I don't know what you want to call it, mini movement in Jewish writing, which is a whole wave of memoirs that are, and again, here's some jargon for you, uh, they're OTD memoirs, that's what they're called, and the, o, the OTD stands for Off 
the derech. And derech is a Hebrew word meaning the path. And the assumption is the path of righteousness or the correct path to follow. And these are memoirs primarily of women, but not only of women, who have left their insular, fervently religious, ultra-Orthodox backgrounds to move into secular society and the the difficulties they face. And it's a kind of a reversion to the immigrant tropes of 100 years ago. And there, a few, Deborah Feldman wrote a book like this. Um, Leah Vincent's memoir, uh, I can't remember the name of it, is out right now. Uh, uh, Got a lot of press about this. Uh, Pearl Abraham wrote a novel called The Romance Reader. Of similar things, and then the, um, he's an NPR guy, often a Shalom Oslender, Forskin's Lament. He <laughs> that. so so he talked about this, and these are all. But but you see, the, it's a kind of a. It's interesting that it's a, a woman directed movement, um, and because women were all, were pretty well represented in the early era of. American Jewish letters, and we see a return to that now, and then also a return to religion. I'm, I can't explain that why sociologically, and it probably doesn't interest you either, but it's there. <laughs> I just wanted to say that I, I was taught at Vermont College in the master's program for about 20 years, and um, I had many lapsed Catholics come to me, people from uh, lapsed evangelicals, things like that, because they knew I'd kind of lapsed in my own situation, but there were many uh, people who really still wanted to deal with that struggle they've had about leaving their religion and not having anything that that took its place. So, I, I think the women, and I agree with you, the women are saying much about that situation. But I was really thinking the most modern writers that I can think of, the Indian writers, uh, I think deal a lot with Hinduism and the, the things. I'm not thinking of their names right now. I've read about five or six lately. Jumpily Hiri. Thank you, but not. Uh, there's some other more, more obscure ones that I'm not coming up with. But, yes, they're dealing with Hinduism and how that affects their lives and how these social mores affect and the culture affects them. So um, I, I, with Christianity, it really stumps me as far I mean, Graham Greene and, of course, Flannery O'Connor were very big uh, influences in my own life. And I appreciated having their stories told and their struggles with the whole thing. But recently, contemporarily, I'm not coming up with it. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, in, in the, well, in Ely's essay and in the class, we talk about um, Marilyn Robinson yeah, and, mm-hmm. and Gilead that's in particular. Um, but she, she is maybe a little bit of the exception that proves the rule. Um, I think... Uh, uh, well, Annie sir- Lamont and, and Mary Carr, I mean, you've got those yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I think you can find you can find lots of examples. Um, uh, uh, Louise Erdrich um, comes to mind. Um, I mean, there there are lots of um, there there there. You can find examples of writers who deal with Christianity in their work. I think the thing that that I th- I, th- it, I I felt like Ely's essay when I really looked at it closely was a little bit slippery, and I had to read between the lines a little bit to figure out what he was lamenting exactly. Um, and I, th- but I think what he was lamenting exactly was um, was the the kind of literature that that um, that Flannery O'Connor and Graham Greene um, and like Brides had revisited, specifically embody of of the the kind of crisis of faith. And you know, O'Connor would set up these stories where you'd have um, two characters who uh, just have these these opposed viewpoints. Um, 
opposed beliefs and she would stick them together in some way they'd be stuck with each other because they're family or they're in love with each other or something and then she'd just have them smash their heads together <laughs> until somebody broke um and um and it was you know it, but what, what the the gist of the conflict between them was was you know usually faith um so uh and I, I i think that um it is a more you know within you know literature is 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 uh and i, I guess I, I mean one thing we should do i want to do is broaden the discussion of you know what is literature i mean there's there's a whole um you know christian section at the bookstore and um and there are whole christian bookstores um you know my my knowledge and experiences with literary fiction um i think uh, you know memoirs come up i think memoir uh different things are happening there um but I, I do feel like literary fiction you know is largely still dominated by white guys um you know thankfully more women um and it dominated you know there, there's there are a lot of a lot of Jewish representation, um, but not a lot of other faces. But there is, there, you know, there is starting to be some your your Jumpalahiris and mm-hmm. um, that sort of a new wave, I guess, of immigrant fiction. Almost going back to um, uh, what Adam was talking about back at the turn of the century with Jewish literature. Um, if anyone's got a, a, a thought to throw in, I'd <laughs> love to take it. I don't think at all. I um, I happen to know Orson Scott Card. Uh, I know him very rarely, <laughs> and I have mixed feelings about him. But but uh, <laughs> yeah, the, and uh, there Shannon Hale and somebody who's you know, there's a lot of I will just say speak for the Mormon community. They write successfully in science fiction and fantasy where they can't do it in fiction. And it's almost something to do with with their mindset. So I thought that that's an interesting comment that you make. Thank you for that. Other questions? How do you think it differs from other types of media? Like, you know, do you see the same trends in film and, and literature? I was just at the Notre Dame Film and Television Reunion, and they're trying to get back to more faith-based, or just people yeah. being tested through illness or whatever. In terms, of, but you know, do you feel like this is cross culture or just literature specific? I mean, I know you're saying memoirs. Hmm. What were you thinking? I um, I haven't thought about it in terms of film, um, but off the top of my head, well, I don't know. Was was there a great era of? faith-based film <laughs> yeah there, there was sister act <laughs> just going through listing all the films in my thoughts there's so many and it's really art we're talking about when I think about literature and and uh, 
Uh, again, I've, I have taught some Mormon people to write, and, and they have the hardest time because they're so literal. I'm rather literal myself. And, and, and it's kind of like open up into this more this larger world you know and and don't have to take your story i mean your belief and 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 teach other people about it that's sort of what is taught in the culture but we should tell other people the good news etc etc through the writing but i i have fought against that in my own way it's like i would like to find beauty where i find it i like to find it in a beautiful sentence and a great paragraph and so uh i think that the key is looking at art if you're going to be you know, coming from any sort of belief, you're an artist. You're not a propagandist. I do think. I mean, I think. Um, you know, America polling tells us America is a very religious country, but I think the 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 educated class that that the writers and artists and and movie makers probably too are drawn from, um, you know, tends to come from a class that's less religious than. And I think a lot less religious and a lot less comfortable talking about it than um, sort of the great body of uh, of America. And I think there's a disconnect there. And I think I, I think that is probably one of the things that holds literature and art back in a way as you know as a form that um, you know is you know it's read by this kind of educated class and doesn't uh, you know doesn't affect. Um, a wider readership in a way in part because it doesn't speak their language in that way I wonder if you could speak to um, primarily South American literature because it seems to have a combination I only put in translation I'm not an expert but so many of the things I've read have had a combination cultural um, Catholicism and mysticism and images and the intense vibrance of the land, or the different types of lands in South America and political movements. Mm-hmm. So that's a clear question. Well, I, I'll just say... <laughs> oh, well, I'll, ju- I'll just say that when I first read Garcia Marquez, I thought, "All right," you know, because I grew up in Las Vegas, and and uh, you'd go down to have lunch, and somebody would be on a trapeze above you <laughs> in a bikini, you know. <laughs> and so uh, my world was really kind of very strange, and I wrote about it, and people thought I was trying to be bizarre, and I said, "No, that's <laughs> that's my life." Anyway, reading Garcia Marquez was so exciting and liberating to me because of this he used all those elements you know and somebody gave gave the name magical realism he did not come up with that one but he used the richness of the catholicism and the, the dictators and all the and he used it all together and he's a great artist in my opinion he was a great artist excuse me i i think that's a really good point uh, that you bring up about south american writers steeped in catholic traditions and folk traditions as well not just sort of dogma um, and what I notice just from teaching students whenever I do something like by Marquez or Borges or something even uh, even Borges there are references to biblical stories which my students do not get it's just, and you mentioned that also Phyllis that, right. that that's a wellspring of western civilization and now I'm coming off like some kind of curmudgeon <laughs> but it, it is uh, essential in, in, in to understanding these things, and if you don't know 
some of the basic biblical stories, then you're missing a great deal out of contemporary letters, whether it's from America or South America or wherever um, it's coming from. Hebrew literature, contemporary Hebrew literature is – this is just let me dispel one misconception. 85% of Israel is overwhel- – so it's overwhelmingly secular. What you see on TV is not representative of the actual culture. So most people are absolutely secular, but they still learn the Bible stories in school. Um, They learn it as literature or as history sometimes, but they don't believe it, uh, which, again, that's part of the – Would it be seen uh, as mythology or just what – It's kind – yeah, kind of like a mythology, Mm -hmm. a sort of imaginary national history basically and it's treated as such so when you when you read contemporary hebrew literature if you pick it up even in translation you have a lot of references to the past to these biblical stories which american readers uh who are jewish i found don't get because they don't know the stories but my evangelical christian students know exactly what's going on because they can they can see that um they can see those echoes. It's a very interesting kind of cross-cultural communication going on there. Yeah. I have a question. Um, so we, we talk about belief in the context of religious faith. Um, I don't know. Do you have you know um, much? Do you have anything to? I mean, what do you have to say about belief that may not necessarily be religious? But still motivates, you know, a person or a character. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that's something we were talking about in um in my class is that you can um you can have characters who uh are motivated by a kind of a I I I've called it a philosophy to, to sort of distinguish, you know, the faith being something that is you know, blind faith is is um, is felt and philosophy being something that you you've intellectualized more, um, and um, I, but the, the 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 two tend to blur together pretty quickly, and it's a little hard sometimes uh, to separate them. But that it's something that I found um, again going back to my experience of trying to draw my characters out. Um, uh, I found it. Uh, really helpful sometimes to just say, okay, the core of this this character is a belief in, and one of the students today gave the example of revenge, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, and you know that can become a story about a character who moves from that core of revenge to forgiveness or or whatever. Um, but um, it, it, you know, it can be anything. It can be you know, I believe that everything in in life relates to sex, and you know. <laughs> There, that that creates a very distinct kind of character very quickly. And, and certainly, there are many beliefs and uh, agnosticism, atheism, and uh, I respect all of those beliefs. But I, I like what you're talking about: is know what you're believing about, or your characters are believing, and how do they deal with the change that might come? I, I don't know if everyone here is writing fiction or poetry or non-fiction I presume a kind of a mix so I, I wrote a non Tao is that you know? yeah. Tao uh, uh, your name uh, so I was writing a non-fiction book and one of the characters in the book is a historical personage who was a he was the first uh, minister of justice on Lenin's revolutionary government and he was Jewish and he was very religious Jew 
in Lenin's government, this Bolshevik government. He was not a Bolshevik. And he was a revolutionary utopianist. And I was trying – this is what he believed in. Um, and he believed that Judaism and traditional belief was consonant with revolutionary utopianism. And I, I am kind of mercifully unburdened by convictions. So <laughs> this is very difficult for me to enter into. And I had to do a lot of reading about psychology. Who are people who believe in anything really? I mean I think it can be a real stumbling block for – an author, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, um, t- who doesn't have that to try to create that kind of character, I think it's very easy to sound false notes, I would suspect. I just was reading a novel, which I gave up after 50 pages because it was totally phony um, because of that. Sure. Uh, I will. I, I don't. Hopefully she's not here. Uh, I, I read about it in The New Yorker recently. It was a novel came out a while ago called God's Ear by Rhoda Lerman. I'd never heard of her. And uh, it was mentioned. It sounded good. And, uh, yeah, I just thought it, it just rang false to me on every page. Um, the writing was not – it was good on a sentence level, but it was not um, – it was hollow. So I put it down. I think that's a danger. I yeah. I pol- politics sort of ties into that. The idea of a person can be motivated by belief um, in a very powerful way as well. And I, I um, and that it's a tangent. But I, one of the things I was thinking about around this topic is that I think to some extent the in whatever way r- literature has lost its faith. However you define lost in faith in literature, I think. Um, <laughs> I think to some extent, you know, I, as Adam would say, I, I can't prove it, but I think to some extent it's probably tied to politics and the kind of tribalism around politics and, um, you know, the, the, you know, the, to the extent that the, um, you know, the Republican Party is now identified with the Christian right. Um, and as, as we know, most writers are not Republicans, they're Democrats. Um, and um, why that is is a, a whole other discussion that we probably had a salon for a couple of years ago. But um, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I think that motivates part of it too. There was this guy in the back who yeah, kept, yeah. <laughs> um, instead of reading, I was watching book TV. Reading books. <laughs> I, I read about her book, yeah. Okay, yeah. She's, she I read it. grew up in a uh, severely, strictly, uh, almost legalistically atheistic household, which she still adheres to, but had a supernatural, what she yeah. defines, I guess, loosely as a supernatural experience that she uh, attached to fill in the blank. She had no vocabulary. And she and Eric were having this great discussion about it. And then people came forth, you know, to the mic to, to ask about it. And, and then a Jewish man got up and said, you know, the, the, the big questions that, that we all wrestle with that you don't have a vocabulary for 
were addressed by ancient writers. And these things have been sort of uh, addressed since time immemorial, but we don't have a vocabulary for them today because it's just not part of the conversation. Is this sort of what Ely, does that correspond to what Ely is getting at in his question? That this is just not a. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I think, um, I, don't, I mean, I would be curious uh, what your experience in the classroom is, Adam. I mean, you said, you know, the, the evangelical students pick up on that language. Yeah. I mean, the, they, know the, they know their Bible stories. Yeah. They, they know their Bible stories. You know, I, I, if, if they're reading some Victorian novel and they're talking about some uh, religious celebration that no one does anymore – I don't know Michaelmas or something. Then everyone they know what it is, or they've heard of it, mm-hmm. and um, everyone else is in the dark. I, they get a, a, that sort of traditional. I want to say Western. I don't know if it's Judeo-Christian or just Christian tradition um, is there, and it's it is problematic when you want to be progressive and open up the canon to other writers and other voices but they're they're not aware of the canon yeah so it's it's meaningless to them to open it up um in a in a sense and so we i find myself often trying to go over basic stories in the bible which you know in my version which is not probably uh, very sacred to to bring them up to speed i mean I, you know how are you going to i don't know it's a book like how are you going to teach east of eden if they don't know Genesis, just a very <laughs> basic idea. Uh, they have no idea. You can't teach half of anyone. I don't teach Milton. I teach modern lit. But if someone teaches Milton, I, you know, they have to provide so much religious and cultural and historical context. Mm-hmm. They're really being historians. They're not even getting to the poem, right? You know, to, or something like that. Does that? Or, does that? It's problematic. Does the even if for the evangelical students who are familiar with the Bible yeah. and, and catch those allusions, does that comfort extend to uh, a greater comfort in just talking about faith in general? As yes, but their language is very different yeah. from the Jewish mm-hmm. language. If we're reading Jewish letters, they'll talk about things. You mentioned the word term grace, mm-hmm. and I was like, I don't. I mean, I didn't really even know what that means in evangelical speech. They'll talk about things like that. Um, and and it's it's part of the meeting between me and them and other students to just try to get part of to to know that we're ta- what we're talking about when we're talking about faith. Yeah. How is their receptivity to the literature? Great. Is there, is there a difference? Great. They're great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No problems. I mean, I have. I will say that I taught on the road once, and I had an evangelical student who hated it. <laughs> but other than that, I've had no pushback ever. Great students. No issues whatsoever. Carmel? Um, it seems like there's a, a divide between what you guys are experiencing and I've experienced it as well, and the economic um, reality of publishing and you know what's like left behind and, um, and the shack was a huge mm-hmm. success. Mm-hmm. Heaven is for real, and people just 
speed it up. I mean, it's very simplistic. It's, you know, twilight. Mm -hmm. Actually, you know, it was a vehicle for, um, you know, 13-year-old girls, anti-abortion, chastity, you know. And it's, it's a, a very religious message, you know, packaged in the sleep vampire novel. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's kind of a, in some cases, it's very, um, like you said, right-wing, maybe Republican, and it's big money. Right. I f you know, I feel like the there used to be your your C.S. Lewis or your J.R.R. Tolkien who came from a very Christian uh, background and could write write a good book on <laughs> some of these themes. <laughs> Right. You know? So it seems like it's there, but um, maybe not in literature. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Uh, it also seems distinctly different to me to talk about some of the, the big name fades versus, like, um, I think of Barbara Kingsolver and that sort of pagan, fairy, just environment that she creates where it doesn't need to be named. There's no church to go to, it just exists kind of in the reality of the characters. And I suppose if you were to interrogate the characters in Prodigal Summer, they would very quickly come to the conclusion that I have a certain faith that that is in something higher than, than what I necessarily name. So um, it does seem like there are certain religions that have a, maybe more of a that sort of good-bad struggle that we're just talking to versus others where you can just be kind of immersed in it, in, in a literary context anyway. Yeah. And it's easier and also less obvious to a reader. Yeah, and, and, I mean, you mentioned Harry Potter. I mean, and I, that makes me. I mean, I think the Harry Potter books are great. They're really well written. Um, I don't. There's there's the good versus evil. I don't think it comes from a Christian. It doesn't. It doesn't have the Christian resonance in the way that the Chronicles of Narnia does. Um, but um, it, this is a, again a little bit of a tangent. But one of the things we talked about in the class is. Um, Anthony Burgess, who was um, who also who wrote from a very Christian perspective, he wrote Clockwork Orange. Um, he, um, he, he, I read an interview with him where he talked about the the distinction between he made a distinction between good and evil versus right and wrong, and he he said good and evil are these uh, are eternal, like something that's good is always good, whereas right and wrong are kind of socially defined, and what happens at a given moment is. Um, yeah, we can, we know whether it's right or wrong in terms of sort of the parameters of our society, but there's there's a deeper level with it, something might be right in terms of our society at this time, but but it could be evil. Um, and um, and then we were we were talking about uh, Huckleberry Finn, um, which you know on its on its grossest surface isn't a novel about faith; it's um, a coming of age story. Um, but really what, what Huck is struggling with is, is a question of good and evil. And, and he's, he's, coming, he's coming through um, sort of the question of faith and belief in terms of there's this belief that's been imposed on him by the society about, um, uh, you know, about the slaves and slaves being property. Um, and, you know, the, the, the final um, turning point in crisis of the novel is, is when Huck 
finally decides that um, he is not going to turn in Jim the slave and send him back. And and it's a really powerful moment in part because Jim, Huck believes um, by making this decision he's going to go to hell. And he you know he's he says that he says, "Darn it, then I'm going to go to hell." And um, so you know that's. I, I don't know if you know one of the things we're talking about is is that a novel about faith or belief? I'm not sure exactly, but it, it, you know I think I think the really good novels struggle with the same things that faith struggles with, and those are those questions of good and evil. How do you live a good life? Um, you know, a great novel has an antagonist who's who embodies evil to some extent. I was just thinking about Carmel's question about the shack and those kind of books. That they're, to my mind, and I didn't read the shack; I've just heard about it. That uh, they, it's so simplistic, and it's what I was trying to address a little earlier. That people come from uh, this is the way to believe, and, and and if and so that to me is not literature. Again, I think that's some kind of propaganda. It's it's not really dealing with it, and Huck Finn has to deal with good and evil, which is he, it's. In, an incredible novel about that struggle, and and it's very complicated. And just, so I think that that's the the difference. And and I really I get angry at some of these very simplistic things that come out, and the, they say, oh, aren't the, and Christian bookstores sometimes have those things. And I'm sorry if I'm offending anyone. I just mm-hmm. uh, think that that's not really what literature is to me. Um, you mentioned the Left Behind series, and I I actually did. Le- really tried hard to finish <laughs> one of them and I did it because my students were all I, 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 they were all reading it I was teaching in Indiana and everyone was reading the Left Behind series like, okay I'm going to try to f- figure out what this is about and I took it home and read it I didn't think it was well written at all um, um, but I took seriously their interest in it because it was a, essentially an apocalyptic novelization of the book of Revelation um, and so they were familiar with this, these ideas, and they were seeing it played out in a contemporary scene. So I, I, I understand that. And that's an example, I think, of where the scripture tradition uh, informs literature. It may not be what we want to read or literary fiction or of a high caliber, but it is a, it is potent force nonetheless. And I'm glad, Nick, that you mentioned Anthony Burgess, who, I mean, everyone reads or knows him for um, Clockwork Orange, but he wrote a great novel about early Christianity called Kingdom of the Wicked, which is fantastic. Mm. Um, and it's, I would imagine not, it's based on a lot of history and a lot of research. He wrote, Burgess wrote, I think, the original screenplay for The Greatest Story Ever Told, um, mm. which is, I believe is shown on Easter, right? Is that mm-hmm. what I was um, wasn't a big hit in my family, but <laughs> I know about it. So, but Kingdom of the Wicked is great, and uh, and I I don't I imagine it would not be I imagine it, it's a challenging novel. I read it years and years ago, but I, it's a challenging novel, not just for its length and and for Burgess's use of crazy vocabulary, but um, theologically. Um, so there's a, a believing man who takes these things very seriously, but who wrestles with those ideas nonetheless and I think that's really what the best tradition is you want to take ideas even if you don't ultimately believe in them seriously if you find them objectionable but if they can be conveyed in a way that you are struggle with them yourself then you're getting an experience of faith a crisis of some sort yourself I think Mm -hmm. 
so with with all the background of of the of Judaism that you've given us, Adam, do, it, does the the crisis of faith kind of novel exist in the in Jewish literature? It exists. Uh, the crisis of faith novel. I, you know what? I don't really know, Nick. It's a good question. I have what to about, think about it more. What about my name is Asher Liv? My name is Asher Liv. Yeah, that's interesting. So Potok does do that. That's a great. That's a great point, Phyllis. So Chaim Potok with um, the Chosen. My name is Asher, Asher Lev. He does do that. Potok's considered very middle brow today. He's a good writer, um, but but you're right. That's that's there. There are um, uh, short stories certainly do that. I think in the Yiddish tradition, there's a lot of uh, some of it's translated into English. Yiddish tradition like um, Chaim Grada. Or um, uh, Isaac Bashev, a singer, you mm-hmm. find a wrestling with these, with the tradition. That's there. It's certainly there in the early 20th century Hebrew literature and Hebrew poetry. This uh, longing for the longing for belief that they no longer can believe, they no longer are part of it, but they long for that part that's that is missing yeah. from their lives. Um, so that does this. But I'm, I'm trying to think of a novel other than Potok that nothing comes to mind immediately. Other and the memoirs, but again, they're not novels. Maybe they are. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the difference between religion being absent from contemporary literature and religion being presented in a somewhat negative light. So, sort of hmm. literature being faithless versus the anti faith, and sort of where that's heading. And I'm just going to say this should probably be the last question. Thank you, guys. What a perfect last question. <laughs> Uh, I do feel like there's a um, there, there's a new book by Joshua Ferris out, and I, it um, it involves a guy who it involves a cult and a guy who has some religious crisis uh, related to joining this cult. I, I didn't really read the reviews of the book. I read this interview with him um, where he was. He was, what resonated with me in this interview was he's talking about it feeling like he had a mutty like a, a mutt uh, kind of religious background and um, and that's what I felt like I had I, I grew up kind of without any religion except every once in a while I'd um, I'd spend Saturday night with a friend and then I'd have to go to church with them on Sunday morning and I was always terrified because I felt like I, I, I knew that religion involved certain ceremonies and you're supposed to say things or do things and I knew, I knew I didn't know what they were and I just figured I would be humiliated um, and that was my experience of religion <laughs> um, and he you know it sounded like he came from kind of a similar background and he was lamenting that he doesn't have a re- religious tradition to um, to ground himself in and um, and his response to that was to write this novel, and you know, sort of all I know about it is that it involves a cult, and it—I mean, I, it may be a great book, but my first response is, eh, you know, like I feel like there are there are a lot of books out there now about cults, and like if I don't, that's that's not the way to really engage with the way most people experience. Um, uh, religion and faith in their lives. I mean, I've, cults are interesting, and I'm sure there are great books to be written about them. But I, I feel like that's, you know, that's this sort of extreme experience that's not going to resonate at a, at a personal level for most people. 
Um, and so I, I guess that's spurred by the thought, yeah, a lot of, to an extent, when religion is portrayed, at least the, you know, sort of Christian faith, it often is, you know, these fringe characters or, um, um, I'm, and then I'm sure you can find all sorts of contrary examples either way, but, uh, I, I guess my, my thought was, you know, I think there, there are a lot of writers, you know, again, the white guy writers out there who kind of come from backgrounds similar to mine where they, they didn't have a really well-defined religious background and then they decide to take on religion and they write about a cult, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I will say I had a friend, who, a writer friend, and he said that he wished he had religion in his background because he didn't have anything to fight against. <laughs> so I thought that was an interesting comment. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was what Joshua Ferris was saying, is that, you know, he envied somebody like Philip Roth, who has this whole Jewish tradition and culture to struggle with and grapple with, and, um, um, and I, I, I get what he's saying, and I, I you know, I've, I've felt the same way at times, but I also, you know, um, you have what you have, and you can make something of it, you know, and I think, um, yeah, you know, lamenting that lack lack of that experience is to ignore the experience that you do have, and that um, that you can make something out of that and create something beautiful with it. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.